can't believe it. That Gerald is presenting the quarterly budget report with finger puppets? Look, here comes a 1.7% decrease in fixed overhead. Hello, everybody. No, I can't believe how easy it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with Geico. Who are you? The projected increase in organic Q3 revenue. Hooray! Believe it, Geico could save you 15% or more on car insurance. This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade, and perhaps not in this century. The ROKC, Reopen the Kennedy Case, proudly presents the first ever Australian JFK Conference in Melbourne, Australia, this November. Join us on a quest for justice and truth with inspirational speakers and some of the world's leading authorities on the Kennedy assassination. Featured guest speakers include Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination speaker and acclaimed author James DiEugenio, Gail Nix Jackson, author and granddaughter of Orville Nix, and Australia's very own Peter Morris. For more info, buy your tickets at stickytickets.com slash reopen Kennedy case conference because justice is never too late. What's up, everybody? And welcome to episode number 73 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark, along for the ride. And like the advertisement said, folks, it's almost August. November will be here before you know it. And I know I got listeners all around the world. I know I see you. I can see you wherever you are. I see you in Sweden, in the UK, uh, Croatia, Korea. China, Mexico, all over the place. All over the place. Not a very big contingent in South America uh, or Africa, but everywhere else, pretty strong, pretty strong. So I know I've got listeners in Australia and in New Zealand and that part of the world. And this year, uh, they're having a JFK conference in Melbourne, Australia, 
hosted by the reopen uh, the Kennedy case uh, forum. Uh, Greg Parker and Frankie Vegas and crew. Um, so it'd be a cool getaway, you know, if you want to take a nice vacation to Australia and get away, get far away uh, from all the hubbub uh, around here and in Dallas this year, that would be a great place to uh, wrap it all into one nice little soft taco there. Uh, and I, I have a link up on the website, tlgpodcast.com. Uh, just look for the little blue button. And you click that, and it'll take you to where you need to be to get all your information you need and your tickets. Uh, and you heard the uh, Unsolved Mysteries music. Uh, because this week, uh, I have a previous guest coming back on the show, and we're going to get into some actual research this time. Uh, Steve Rowe is back on the show. Um, and we're going to be talking today about the mysterious package. And... Uh, for those of you who don't are are not even aware of this mysterious package, to, you're gonna want to listen and you're gonna want to check this out. And then we're gonna get into a little bit about uh, debunking the whole George Bush in Dealey Plaza thing with some actual uh, facts and research. So check it out. Stick around for the whole show. You don't want to miss it. This is your boy Rob Clark. See you at the end of the show. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 73. And today I have a special return guest returning to the show, Mr. Steve Rowe. How you doing, buddy? Hey, good, Rob. Good to hear from you, man. Been a long time again. I know. Make yourself I... scarce. <laughs> Well, I got a, I got, I got a kind of rotation going on here. I got to try to get everybody in, uh, and uh, I figured it was, it was about your time was about up, so I, I hollered at you. Uh, you you're just avoiding me. <laughs> no, nah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm kidding you. I'm kidding you. <laughs> I love you guys. You. Yeah, I know. We go back a little way, don't we? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, today. Uh, Steve, let's start off here. I, on, on the last show I did with Will, um, we, we were talking about uh, certain maybe questionable things about the assassination. And one of them was uh, military intelligence in Dealey Plaza and uh, possibly how um, DPD might have gotten a hold of their files due to an address that was given for for Lee Oswald that was found in the, uh, in the DPD files, uh, when, on a list of, uh, school book depository employees. And I think it was given as what, 602 Elsbeth street. And, uh, you wanted to address that for a minute? Uh, yeah, Rob. And by the way, before I get started in that, that was a great show. You and Will, and I think Will's got a great, uh, site coming up for everybody. Uh, that was an excellent show, and uh, and you guys are right. You guys uh, on the primary sources, that's the way to do it. And uh, you made some excellent points there about, uh, you know, a lot of these authors now quoting each other and others' books and stuff like that, which is just nuts. And, uh, you know, that's where it's degraded down to a lot. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, that was a great, uh, good show, and I enjoyed all those comments. Oh, thank you, thank uh, you. Yeah, uh, yeah, one of the things, uh, you guys were talking about last time was this, uh, 602 Elspeth address that 
Oswald was uh, <clears throat> supposedly linked to during his arrest. And there was some discussion back and forth where this came from. Uh, well, uh, the address they had on file at the Texas School Book Depository was uh, Ruth Payne's over there in Irving. Right. So that was what they had on file. And they gave that to uh, <clears throat> uh, Captain Will Fritz. And uh, so that's what he was starting to do his search on after he left the Texas School Book Depository. Uh, anyway, uh, meanwhile, when Oswald got arrested over there at the Texas Theater, and they dragged him out hollering and screaming, they got him in the car, and they were just kind of talking to him, and he was pretty belligerent. And I asked him what his what his name was, and he wouldn't tell him. You know, you figure it out. <clears throat> so anyway, I think it was either Bentley or one of them there, I can't remember, reached back here in his and got his wallet out and pulled out his wallet to see what kind of ID he had on him. Yeah. And one of those IDs was the Dallas Library card. <laughs> and uh, on that library card, it had 602 uh, typed in there, or 602 Elspeth, but actually a 5 kind of over 2. It was kind of messed up. But anyway, that's what they get, where they got that from. Uh, and there is a, a primary source document showing that, how they got that, because the War Commission questioned them about that too, so there was no military intelligence involved on that. Uh, so they, they had it, they looked at it, they were checking it out, and, uh, anyway, that's where they got it. But, uh, well, there's a lot of questions. How, how did they find out he lived on, uh, Beckley Street over there, 1026 North Beckley. Right. And uh, where that came from was uh, the, uh, when Fritz sent uh, his detectives out there, Rose, Stovall, and then there was uh, some from the Sheriff's Department come over there with them too. Can't recall their names. But anyway, they went over through Ruth Payne's house and started their search, and they looked in everywhere. Uh, anywhere. <coughs> They could find anything, and uh, but what they did find was that telephone number to the uh, Beckley Rooming House. I don't know who pointed it out to him, Payne or whatever, but uh, anyway, they found that number. Uh, so what they did, they, one of the uh, sheriff's detectives called uh, Bill Decker, Sheriff Bill Decker, and Bill Decker did a what they call a crisscross reverse phone lookup. Yep. And uh, all the law agencies have those things. You can look it up. So you can look, just give them the phone number, he can look it up, and he can find the address. And that's that's how they found that Beckley address. And they went over there sometime after that. So that's where that came from. Gotcha. I, I was just wondering, because I'd heard that they were over there as early as one thirty, which... I mean that's that's damn early. <laughs> nah, no, nah, I don't think so. That, I, I was looking back on that uh, on uh, Glass Johnson's Warren Commiss testimony, and uh, her husband can't remember his name now. But uh, and they were questioning about the time they the uh, people came over to the house. You know, they had a restaurant downtown Dallas. There, they were working with. 
assassination. I guess they started home, and I think they got home one thirty two o'clock themselves. So the timing on it was, uh, you know, Oswald was pretty much in City Hall around a little past two o'clock. So there was some confusion on time and everything, but uh, you know, I, it, had to nail it down. It, it'll be. It'll be uh, closer probably to the three, you know, 245 or three, maybe. Gotcha. But uh, anyway, they didn't show up there. <laughs> they had no idea where you lived, unless you thought it was a conspiracy. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, well, let's stay in Oak Cliff for a minute, and uh, let's talk about this mysterious package um, found, I guess, was two what two weeks after the assassination, I think, in early December, uh, in the dead letter the dead letter bin of the uh, I don't I guess it was Dallas or, or was it Irving? I think it was Dallas. It, it was Irving. It was Irving. Okay. Oh, my cat is hollering at something outside. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this package we're talking about is is a, is a I guess it's kind of a brown, uh, I guess a handmade envelope I would call it I guess, um, and it has what appears to me to be Lee Oswald's handwriting on it. I mean, do you looking at it? I mean, do you think that 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 could be his writing on it? Yeah, Rob, I'm, I'm looking at it right now uh, again and. It sure looks like his handwriting. It's got his the O in Oswald, where he has a little curtsy in there, you know, on the O on the top. Yep. That's pretty uh, consistent with the rest of his handwriting. Uh, yeah, it, it appears to me like it is. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, not, not the Irving part that was added at the bottom, but just the address itself, the Dallas address. And... Uh, Get, tell everybody what address is actually on the envelope. Okay. Yeah, as, as you described earlier, uh, what it was was this, we call it package, but it's more like a little parcel. And uh, what it is, is, is if you remember the old style where you used to, you know, order the books, single books at a time uh, through the mail, it would be like kind of a, an envelope, but it was had sewn ends of it. Uh, where they have like a little manila or nylon thread sewn on the ends of them. Yeah. Anyway, this is what uh, <clears throat> this is what it is. Uh, similar. Uh, I can't find any dimensions on it exactly, but you know, I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Nine by eleven or something? Or I would say I would say like at least that. I mean, the, the from what I've heard, the the the, uh, the piece of paper inside was. Of course, folded, and uh, it was approximately two feet long, about I think eight inches wide. So yeah, about about nine by eleven sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so anyway, this package uh, uh, on 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 the face of the package is a uh, address label, as Rob and I were talking about there with Lee Oswald. Address says for Lee Oswald. 601 West Nasus Street, Dallas, Texas. Okay. Uh, 
601 West Nasus. Uh, there is no street in Dallas, Irving, or anywhere around with that spelling, but he spells, the spelling on the envelope itself is N-A-S-S. Looks like an O or it could be an A-U-S. Nasus, Nasus Street. Uh, so this is probably the most likely reason why this ended up in the what they call the Nixie or dead letter department of the post office because there was no street by this name. Uh, it was also it was also uh, Steve lacking a little bit of postage. I think uh, it was lacking twelve cents in postage as well. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. There was no postage on it. There was no return address on it. And below this address label, somebody had written Irving, Texas. Yeah. And I think that was probably from the Dallas post office, what I'm thinking here. But uh, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, here's this package. It was discovered on December 4th. So, yeah, that's pretty close to two weeks after his assassination. It was discovered in Irving uh, in what they call the Nixie Department or Dead Letter. Let me, let me explain that Nixie uh, post office term. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of letters, parcels, and everything out there that people just screw up on, right? right. I mean, they, they forget somebody's name or somebody's address or sometimes they don't even have an address on it so or stamp. when they go i'm sorry i said or it could be you know that it had no stamp or no return address you know yes yes yeah i had a stamp on whatever so when they go to sort this mail out uh you know they pick their regular stuff everything was are good with it and then they get these little oddball things with no postage or no address or something, uh, a wrong address, and it goes to what they call a Nixie department or section of the post office. And a Nixie clerk is the, uh, he's probably, according to a friend of mine here, a a postal inspector I had a chance to meet online here, uh, he explained to me that usually that the Nixie clerk is the most one of the most experienced people in the post office. You know, have many years, knows the area well, real well, uh, and, and he gets charged with the task of trying to sort these things out. You know, hopefully get it to the right owner or or send it back to the sender or whatever. But uh, anyway, this package was found over in Irving in that over there. The interesting thing about this package. It was found half opened. Uh, it looked like somebody had cut into the side of it around the sewn part of the envelope, and it was discovered that way. So this got brought to the postal people over there. Of course, you can imagine they were hot and heavy trying to find uh, anything linking Oswald to any postal things. And uh, Harry Holmes, the uh, famous postal inspector over there in Dallas, showed up over there at Irving, just a short drive away. And uh, they gave it to, to Holmes, and he opened it up. 
and uh, inside, as Rob described, there was a paper bag folded in half. Uh, I think I, I want to say it's like 18, 19 inches or so. I can, I'm about to verify that, but uh, uh, the paper bag was opened on both ends. Right. And then along with that paper bag was a two or three inch corrugated paper, uh, you know, with the little ribs, you know, going up and down on them, you know? Yeah, to kind of keep it stiff. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it. Strange, huh? Yeah. So. <laughs> Just a little. So anyway, uh. <laughs> what is this so they're trying to figure this out and uh so like they brought this uh postal people brought this to the uh attention of the fbi and the fbi they turned it over to the fbi and of course the one thing they were thinking of is is this paper bag that's uh, another paper bag that matches the rifle bag in the texas school book depository and uh, so that was the first kind of deal suspicion there. So anyway, they got to the FBI and they they sent it to the FBI lab and they they compared the paper of that bag to the rifle bag and they were two different papers. So uh, evidently uh, that bag most likely was not made in. Uh, School book depository, and also they uh, dusted for fingerprints, trying to find fingerprints. They could not find any usable fingerprints on there. And this fingerprint discussion gets kind of goofy sometimes. Uh, you know, when you do, when you they got a whole process. The FBI's got a couple processes they used back then that for fingerprints on paper and. Uh, I know it was a big discussion around the Walker letter, uh, but uh, it's not uncommon to find non-usable prints on paper. So anyway, uh, so that's where they left it. Uh, nobody knows what happened, who sent it, where sent it. It just kind of got shuffled away, you know. Uh, it's something really not that important, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they mentioned it to the Warren Commission, or they, uh, or the, you know, the, the Warren Commission followed up on it at all. Yeah, that's correct. It wasn't even mentioned, not at all. So, well, they didn't talk about it. I think it was an exhibit, but uh, anyway, they didn't talk about it. Uh, so anyway, uh, it just kind of faded by the wayside there and, and it was brought to my attention a few years ago by you Rob and uh, you know I wasn't aware of it and uh, so it's kind of one of these good little mysteries that we start working on trying to find uh, now there was a uh, another well I think it's one of these little uh, things that come in the mail when you uh, what was it here things. So it's a little, uh, a notice card. <clears throat> there was a notice card sent to Irving, Mrs. Payne's house for uh, Oswald. And uh, the date 
that. This is where it get this this little notice card gets confused with this package. Uh, yeah, I think the cops found it that day in the mailbox when they went out there to talk to her. I think. Yeah. Or it was the day after. Yeah, I'm trying to find those notes on there. Uh, I've got a a document on that. But I, I don't think it was correlating to the same to the same package. I didn't think. Okay, there we go. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they'll do it. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll pick off where we left off. Uh, yeah, I think you were talking about that uh, that notification. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, there was an, a notice card uh, placed in uh, Ruth Payne's mailbox. Uh, I found that document at C, CE1799. You can look there. Uh, anyway, in that document, that says it was determined that a postage due parcel had been on hand in the Irving Post Office for Mrs. or Mr. Oswald earlier in the week and was delivered about November 20th or 21st. And uh, in another document, I think I saw uh, it was just magazines and uh, stuff of foreign nature. Yeah. <laughs> Most likely the militant worker uh, Russian publications that Oswald was subscribing to. Right. So it appears that these are two different things, although they are 12 cents due on each one. So there's it appears that uh, there's some confusion around this a uh, little bit. So, uh, as we talked earlier, it was uh, just kind of dropped by the wayside, you know, just kind of, well, is this thing fake, you know, and nobody can figure out this address thing. So, uh, anyway, a couple years ago, Rob and I were chit-chatting about it. We did a little work together on it. A couple other people joined us. Uh, and what I looked at it myself because uh, it, it does appear like it's Oswald's handwriting to me. Right. Uh, it, it really does. Uh, you know, unless somebody's a good forger like in the Oak Ridge <laughs> yeah. deal. But uh, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> it's, it's very unusual, you know. And then why make up a fake name that's not even in Dallas? Uh so I got looking around in this thing and uh, pulling back an old map of Oak Cliff, trying to see if there's an Aces Street or an Aces Street in there. But knowing that Oswald is a notoriously bad speller, I got thinking to myself. I said, "Well, this guy is probably a uh, you know he's not the world's best speller, you know, and maybe he's phonetically spelled a street by." mistake or something so sure enough uh, looking at this map and there is a what they call Natchez Street in Oak Cliff and that's spelled N-E-C-H-E-S Natchez that's that's an old Indian tribe that used to live in Dallas, uh, Texas and there's other stuff named like Natchez River and everything and that's only a half a mile away from uh, his 
Reuben house. He on the and, back side of uh, it. So anyway, start digging around, digging around on some of these old forums about it, see if anybody else was talking about it or made any headway on it. And uh, there was some really strange stuff going on there, people thinking it was coded, whatever, you know. I mean, really UFO-type stuff. Yeah. And uh, one, one famous researcher, Tony Marsh, uh, wrote in his book that he came up with the same conclusion I did, independent of each other, he probably meant Nature's Street. Uh, and I think that's what he probably intended to. So, <clears throat> Nature's, uh, it, Nature's Street runs uh, east-west. Uh, Beckley runs north-south. But uh, anyway, you go a little north on Beck. Uh, I'm sorry, south of the Beckley Room and House. You can cut over on the... Oh, I can't remember the street. But anyway... Uh, about a half mile down, 601 West Natchez sits on a corner of Woodlawn and Natchez Street in Oak Cliff there. Uh, the house, uh, looking into all this stuff, that house is an old duplex of a house that is very, very common back in Oak Cliff during those days. Uh, you know, those houses are back, built back in the way in the 30s and 20s and some of the 40s, and not unusual. A lot of those people in that neighborhood, in fact, my uncle had one himself, uh, to convert those into rental properties. Yeah, make them into two. Like two halves, like split it down the middle and make it two two separate residences, but it's one house, right? That's correct. That's correct. And it's exactly what that house is. Uh, it's, you know, it sits on a corner. One, one side is the, is Nature Street. The other side is Woodlawn. Right on the corner. But there is no 601 Natchez. Now, Natchez does run west and east. So, I have a pretty good feeling that's, the address was intended for that, ad, that, that home there. So, uh, anyway, I did a little research on it, kind of off and on through the last year and a half or so, and uh, whenever I got time, uh, I actually did make a trip down there uh, a couple of years ago or a year ago and uh, looked at it. Uh, that home is, was it like a duplexed. So, uh, anyway, I started doing some research there through the library, uh, doing some crisscrossing, trying to find out who owned that house. Uh, was there a 601? Well, come to find out, uh, there was no 601 address, but that was not uncommon at that time. Uh, trying to find a phone number to it, whatever, you know, there was no, nothing I can link it to, except, uh, I'm trying to remember how I did this, but anyway, I did find a, a name of a guy, resident, that lived there. Yeah, it was a crisscross. Uh, the other side of the duplex is 1101 Woodlawn, so I did a crisscross on that, uh, 1963 crisscross, and uh, came up with the name of uh, uh, Jim Cave, C-A-V-E. So now, <clears throat> after kind of looking around, uh, well, who's this guy? I was hoping that uh, 
on the other side of the uh, duplex. Right. So, so it's all very strange, you know. You know, Oswald was living over in Beckley. Now, what's this? What's this six hundred one West Nature's got to do with it? You know. Uh, well, what's going on here? Very strange. I don't know why. You know, but uh, and this, there's really no telling when this parcel was sent. You know, it wasn't. Uh, was it around the time of the assassination? Was it close or when? You know, I mean, it was strange and no postage on it. You know. I, well, Steve, I'd have to say it was probably before the assassination because I think that name would have been sending off alarm bells if if they would have, uh, you know, found it after the assassination. It was probably sitting in that bin before the assassination. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah then, that's what I tend to believe is, you know, it's not, it's not beyond people to make jokes and put stuff like that, but... Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that I tend to agree with that. It was probably sent before, sometime before. Who knows? Yeah, it probably and, uh, it probably sits there. Probably, I guess maybe three. I don't I don't know exactly how long, but I'm guessing that maybe two or three weeks before they maybe clean that bin out. And that's mm-hmm. maybe when they found it and came across it. You know, as they were cleaning it out. You know, in December, in early December. I'm just guessing. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I, that's that's what I'm guessing. Well, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> all comes to a dead end here. But uh, anyway, I start kind of just tracking down, just digging deeper, trying to find this, who's lived there, what this house was, and everything. Uh, uh, was able to locate Mr. James Cave, Jim Cave. Uh, through an, old, an online Oak Cliff group. Uh, that guy that knew him gave me his address, email address. And uh, Mr. Cave lives up here in uh, Washington State. And, uh, or was it Oregon? One of those. But uh, anyway, I shipped him off an email and asked him. And uh, he said that uh, he did live there at that address 1101 which is the other side of the duplex uh, from about November 62 to six months later in the spring of uh, 63 and he said at that time he moved out because he got married I think he was 21 years old at that time his father was uh, a local funeral director had a funeral home over there uh, called Cave Smith Funeral Home in Oak Cliff. And uh, anyway, he, he got married and, and then he moved somewhere else. So I asked him if he recalls anybody living there at all. And he says, no, he doesn't recall anybody living there. And I asked him if he was, if, if it was a rental place. And he said, yes, it was a rental duplex. And that was it. Uh, uh, you know, I've got, I've got him there to the spring of 63, and then he moved out. So that was a dead end. Uh, I couldn't find anybody that lived there. And I did another crisscross for 64, see if I could find anybody that maybe moved in later. And 
house, that duplex on Natchison Woodlawn Street are vacant, most likely vacant during the assassination. Now, uh, Mr. Cave doesn't remember who his landlord was at the time, did he? No, but I did find that out. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> so, with the help of Chris Simondon, uh he he was able to do a little search for me and, and got me the name of the owners of that house. Uh, I think it was some property tax or, or some type of real estate rolls down there in Dallas. Anyway, he came up with it pretty dang quick. And it was a guy, it was owned by uh, a husband and wife, uh, Clarence and uh, Ruth, I think it was her first name, O'Birney, Irish name, O'Birney. Hmm. Now, then I started researching that. But the O'Birneys had uh, uh, several other homes, too, in, in around Dallas. So, you know, they were seen to be kind of a little well-off. They had a, I think they had an insurance company there in Dallas. And uh, this was one of their rental properties, basically. Right. I think, I think, I think that property was in her name, Ruth O'Birney, if I recall why. But uh, anyway, uh so I got the name, and I did a little search on them, you know, and trying to find any background info on them, you know. But in uh, 63, they would have been pretty elderly, you know, talking maybe 60s or late 50s or 60s in age, you know. Uh, what I can determine at them, they were just regular old folks, you know. Right. Nothing, nothing sinister at all. So anyway, that's where it all kind of went down. And uh, it went to a dead end, basically, like a lot of research does. But uh, I'm surprised you got that far. I mean, that's a, that's a good bit of digging there, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I went back and looked, took pictures of the property, and I found the looked like the old uh, entrance to the nature side of the street. Uh, uh, it looked like they had remodeled it at some point, you know, since 63. But it probably had uh, two entrances on, on that side. I don't, you know, they could have really divided this home up to fourplex maybe if they wanted to. But uh, uh, it looked like it appeared to me that there were maybe two entrances on that side, on the nature side. And uh, if you start out on 601, uh, there was a 603 at one time, and uh, they look boarded up now. So uh, I don't know if that home is still a duplex or if it's just a uh, single family now. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, that's where it all kind of went down to, Rob. I mean, I tracked it down as far as I could. Uh, it's just one of those little mysteries that... It's so common in this thing, you know? Yep. And I mean, like you said, I, you know, if that guy was living there for six months and he never had uh, knowledge of anybody living next to him in the, in the duplex, it, you know, for that, that long of a stretch, then it's not too much of a stretch, I don't think, to to say that after he moved out in the, in the, in the spring of 63 that 
you know, it, the, the property could possibly have still been vacant at the time of the assassination, you know, or at least up to a, a certain point. I mean, you know, Oswald could have been walking around the neighborhood and looking for abandoned houses, you know, and, uh, you know, found that one and, uh, for whatever reason, decided to use it as a mail drop, you know, or, you know, it could have been, it could have been occupied by who, who, who knows who, you know, at, after the spring of 63 and, uh, you know, as, in terms of, you know, possibly using it as a safe house or, you know, or something else. Well, it's, it's definitely in his neighborhood. Uh, you know, uh, of course, Oswald didn't, didn't have any means of transportation other than a bus. Uh, but it's not uncommon for Oswald to be walking around, you know, in Oak Cliff. Uh, uh, there's no doubt in my mind he walked around there. He knew Oak Cliff pretty good. Uh, so anyway, this nature's right there on the corner of Woodlawn, and I mean, he just very well had gone by it one time. Uh, there could have been a uh, sign out there for rent, right? And that's that possibility also exists because, uh, <clears throat> well, not at twenty first when Oswald went back to Irving, uh, he uh, kept mentioning to Marina that he wanted to get back together he's got an apartment over there in Oak Cliff and get her back but of course she turned him down I think she had enough of him but uh, there's that possibility maybe he uh, intended but uh, the real the real funny thing about this is what's a paper bag doing there you know <laughs> you yeah. don't want to mail yourself a paper, paper, paper bag yeah. now like I said before, when they discovered this package, it was half half opened. Yep. I mean, somebody had gone in there and split it half open. So whatever contents were in there, uh, who knows? It could have been gone. Uh, yeah. And anyway, that- by the time it gets to Harry Holmes, you know, he finds it's already half open. Yeah. So he cuts cuts the rest of it open. You know, he initials that on the package, but, uh, so you got that mystery too. So who knows, man? (laughs) Yeah. Or if, uh, you know, if it did contain something and, uh, you know, Holmes notified the the FBI and they came down and decided to go ahead and open it up and grab, see what was in it. And then they just said that there was nothing in it and that it had been cut open by somebody else. And they decided to keep whatever, whatever was in it for themselves. I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility either. Well, possible. possible. If you're, if you're looking Holmes at nefarious things. Yeah, I think Holmes had already opened it up before he contacted the FBI. But, uh, but yeah, anything's possible. With it. I mean, it could be a fake for all we know, too. So <laughs> if it is, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, no doubt. And so now we, now we come to the the unenviable task of, of trying to figure out why Oswald would do this. I mean, we know, I mean, if it's, if it's, if it's authentic, if, if he, you know, if he's the sender of this package, you know, the man has, we know sent a lot of mail in the past. He knows about postage and how that works. I'm sure. Um, there, you know, there's a reason 
I guess, why why he wouldn't put postage on this on this package. You know what I'm saying? It, do, it just doesn't make sense. No, you're right. It doesn't make sense. Uh, let me add a couple more things to this. Uh, why did it end up in Irving in the first place? Uh, I think the reason why that package ended up in Irving because... Uh, Oswald moved to uh, New Orleans. He had over on Irby Street, the, the general post office on Irby Street. He had a, a, a PO box twenty nine fifteen, and then he forwarded everything to uh, New Orleans uh, sometime early May or right before he moved, or right after he got to New Orleans. So he had his New Orleans post office box. And then when he moved out of New Orleans and he got back from his little Mexico trip, uh, he was looking for work, you know, and he found work. And then around, uh, I don't know, around 1st of November, he opened up uh, another post office box. But this time it's not the general post office box. It's at the postal annex directly across from uh, uh, Texas School Book Depository. Right. Other side of the dealing plaza there. So that's where his post office box was, 6215, I think it was, or don't recall the number, but anyway, that was his last post office box. And he had paid that up till I think the end of December, so I recall right. But anyway, so as typical Oswald, he, he put his post office boxes over towards close to his work, you know? Yep. And this would be, you know, in conjunction with his bus trips and everything, you know, just, just go over there and walk short distances and get it and conduct all his business that way. But, uh, but I believe they tracked that package back to Irving because, uh, when, uh, Oswald left New Orleans, he put his forwarding address to, uh, Irving Street, Irving, I'm sorry, Irving, Ruth Payne's house. On Fifth Street, there. So I think that's how they got it, uh, and why it went to Irving. Uh, yeah, and he he may have been he may have been like you said earlier. Uh, he may have been getting mail at Ruth Payne's house in Irving uh, through you know certain uh, I guess uh, subscriptions that he may have had or, or something to that effect. You know where they were going straight to her house. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe somebody had noticed that before and remembered the name and that, but not the address maybe, but just the name and Irving and, uh, and just crossed out that and wrote Irving on the package and sent it well, to that's Irving. Correct. He was getting mail after he moved out of New Orleans. Uh, some of that mail that was still going to New Orleans got forwarded back up to Irving. That's correct, Rob. Yeah, and because I mean, you said you know that the most experienced, knowledgeable guys are on the Nixie bin. You know what I mean? So it's it's possible, you know, that whoever was running that thing had had seen it come through and was like, you know, I've seen this before, but I think it was Irving. But uh, so I'll send it over to Irving, but I don't remember the exact address. And then it went to Irving and, and got stuck in the dead letter bin. So right. Well, they they did interview. A lot of those Irving Postal employees and nobody remembers that thing coming in there. So 
it's 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 a weird one, but you know they found it. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, Rob, it's it's a very good mystery. I don't know. I don't know how much further you can dig into it to discover something. But uh, I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm gonna keep it in mind. But uh, well, let, let me take it this far, and uh, since I'm a conspiracy guy, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there for on the conspiratorial angle of of what this package could possibly mean, and. I did come across um, evidence that, uh, you know, this is part of what, I guess, early parts of spy craft. Um, it, was a, it was a trick that uh, some spies used to use to get rid of something uh, for a little while that they did not want on their person or in their residence, uh, you know, valuable information or what, whatever, you know, whatever it could be, have you. Um, they would... They would uh, drop a package in the mail with no postage or an undeliverable address because they knew it would end up in the dead letter bin, but they would use the correct name so that, that they had identification for. So, you know, they drop it in, uh, you know, a mailbox. They knew it wouldn't be delivered anywhere that it would end up in the dead letter bin. And then a couple weeks later when they needed to get it back, they would go there, show their ID, say, hey, I've been expecting a package. Uh, I haven't got it yet. Uh, my name is Lee Oswald. Do you have anything, uh, you know, for me somewhere? And then they would look in the dead letter bin and say, oh, yeah, but it has this other address. And, oh, I don't know what happened there, but I'm Lee Oswald. Uh, you know, can I have my package now? Thank you. And uh, pay the postage or whatever and, and, and go on out the door. Now, you mentioned before, of course, uh, a corrugated uh, insert into the package, which is normally done when you have something in there that you don't want to get bent, such as photographs. Um, so, and that would, you know, weigh, you know, almost relatively nothing. Um, it'd be very thin. Um, you know, it could be, it could have been, uh, you know, or a piece of paper or something, you know, a document or something you didn't want to get bent. Um, so that's just a conspiratorial uh, spy craft angle that I wanted to throw out there that, that could possibly explain this. If, you know, Lee had something in his possession that maybe he wanted to uh, get out of his possession for a little while or possibly, you know, be found and, and exonerate him after the fact you know, when they would discover this thing in the, in the post office. But that's pure speculation, and, uh, you know, I'll admit that. But it, it is an interesting nugget that it's an old uh, an old spycraft trick. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, you know, my first impression of it when I saw it was he made it there at the school book depository, that little package. Because, uh, you know, it's got the sewn ends of it, you know. It's like it's like he used to send single books, you know. Uh, but you that's not uncommon for the, that to do that. And now the, the book depository used to mail their stuff. They used to send their employees right across the street at the postal annex to to mail that stuff out, you know. So I was thinking, possibly, you know, it just got sent in with that. But there's a mail drop right outside the school book depository, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, right out front. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, when, they, when the FBI did compare those, 
that paper and all that, you know, they just, uh, you know, they just found it different from the paper, the rifle bag. Uh, so, uh, I don't know where to go with it, Rob, to be honest with you. I, I, I'm trying to track it down as fast as I can, but, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know why the reason what disturbs me is why it was half opened, you know? Yep. I mean, it makes me think they took something out, but, uh, you know, I, I'm yeah. sure we'll, we'll never know. Um, you know, but we'll just put it out there, Steve, that if anybody has any more information about who was maybe living at uh, 601 uh, Nash's Street in 1963, or they have any more information on this package to uh, to get to get at us and, and, let, and uh, let us know, and, you know, we can uh, relay it on a future show because I know, Steve, that this, this show gets heard all over the world, uh, you know, by many, many different people. And you'd be surprised at some of the messages I've gotten about shows I've done. So um, we'll put that out there. You know, if anybody has more information on, on the package or um, or Oak Cliff, you know, the 601 Nash Street, maybe who was living there at the time, uh or anything about it, uh, you know, get at us and let us know. Um, like I said, I first saw this package, I think it was on uh, Oswald's mother uh, blog. And uh, I know Anthony Summers wrote about it in his book, Conspiracy, as well. I think he came to the same conclusion that, that, that you and Marsh did, that it was uh, meant to be Na- uh, Nash's Street. And, uh, Nature's, yeah. Nature's Street. And, uh, you know, I think it's on page 70-something in, in his book, Conspiracy. Um, but I think he came to the same conclusion and there's only so far you can take this. So, I mean, we'll just leave it there and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, people out there listening, uh, might have some more information on this and we can take it even further. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We appreciate, uh, anybody that might have something, you know, uh, but please don't no UFO, no coded Navajo code talk stuff. Okay. <laughs> Stuff. Yeah, no. I've seen some of that, Rob. Believe me, it's crazy. I have too. I've seen you know people saying that it was a you know a forgery or a fake, but I, I'm I'm with Steve here. I think it looks to be authentic uh, Lee Oswald handwriting on the package. Right. Okay. Now, Steve, let's turn our attention uh, to another another bone of contention in the uh, in the uh, JFK community, and that is the involvement of one. George Herbert Walker Bush in the uh, in the assassination here, and uh, what they like to point to, of course, is uh, is a couple FBI documents that uh, that say that you know he reported his uh, I guess one of his workers, uh, George Parrott, uh, is as as having hard feelings toward Kennedy and could possibly be considered a suspect, and that he did this. I think the afternoon of the assassination. And then there's another FBI document floating around out there where Hoover says, uh, you know, George Bush of the CIA, you know, reported this, that, and the other. So let's, uh, and then, and of course, the famous uh, George Allen picture that uh, people love. They just love it. They love it to death. They love to point out that uh, there's George Bush standing in front of the Texas School Book Depository. Or there's George Bush in the Dow Text building, uh, you know, acting as a spotter for an assassin, you know. So, so let's clear the air up a little bit here. Where in the hell was George Bush on November 22nd, 
I saw Captain Kangaroo up there too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George Bush. Okay, well, yeah, as you say, uh, a lot of this George Bush. Uh, let me just preface this. There's a lot of people that hate George Bush. Let's just get it down to it, right? Yeah. Junior and senior. They just hate him. Uh, you know, big old man, CIA director, president, and all this stuff. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of hatred towards George the Bushes. Okay, no matter, but, you know, I'm, I'm neutral on Bush. I'm not a big fan, or I'm not a, a hater on him either. But uh, anyway, there's a lot of hatred in this country for Bush. So, uh, Ross, Russ Baker wrote a uh, book called Family of Secrets, which he goes in there and then pretty much trashes the whole Bush family, you know, for everybody, everything under the sun. Uh, so, he fueled the fire. Uh, and you got Russ Baker on uh, with Jesse Ventura's conspiracy theories. And that's where they show the, the Allen picture, as you say of a man standing next to the uh, school book depository building appearing very similar looking like George Bush senior yeah. H Bush okay so this fueled a lot of people out there and of course oh god there's Bush there's Bush there he is I got him you know so now they start throwing all this this I mean it just got ridiculous but here's the facts of the matter uh George Bush, senior, of course, you know, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, you know, he, he was an East Coast Ivy Leaguer. He moved to Texas, and uh, he decided to get in. He, uh, of course, he was a World War II pilot, uh, you know, decorated. And then uh, when he got to the war, he got involved with uh, getting into the oil industry. He started out in dresser industries, which is a big end. Big uh, oil field service company, and I think he was a drilling bit salesman, if I remember correctly. But anyway, he, uh, of course, his family had money. Uh, his dad, Prescott Bush, you know, well-known senator. Uh, anyway, he started a oil company in Midland, Texas, West Texas. Uh, I think it was three guys. They started up their own business, uh, and then they. Uh, Named it Zapata Petroleum. Uh, Zapata was named after the movie Viva Zapata with Marlon Brando back in the fifties, uh, early fifties. And then from there, they, they had another branch. They decided to get from the from the oil side. They wanted to get into the uh, uh, rig contractor side, so they started Zapata Offshore Drilling, which is uh, drilling rigs offshore. Jackups, drill ships, that type of things. Uh, I don't know if they had semis, but uh, anyway, they started that business and, and in the 50s. And then, of course, it, it kind of took off. The drilling side uh, part of business was making a lot of money. Uh, so there was a big demand for these offshore rigs at that time. So... Uh, Anyway, Bush ended up moving to Midland, from Midland to Houston in 1958. Okay, then he was named president of Zapata Offshore Drilling. And uh, he pretty much ran that uh, company.
company out of Houston there. And by that time, you know, in the early 60s, he was already a millionaire. Okay, in 63, he uh, he was a, a Republican. He got involved with the Republican Party. And uh, he was the Harris County chairman of the Republican Party, which uh, Harris County is uh, Houston. So he was a big uh, Republican man. And let me say about Republicans in Texas at that time, they were very scarce. I mean, yeah. Texas was a uh, <laughs> Texas was a strong Democratic state. Uh, in fact, most of the South was strong Democratic. Yeah, it was more like con- you had conservative Democrats and, and liberal Democrats, and you know, no Republicans. You're right. <laughs> You're right. So, uh, Democrat Party was very strong. And uh, just back up a little history there, Democratic Party was uh, strong in the South because. The Republicans in the Civil War had their great Reconstruction, <laughs> and uh, that left a big bad taste in everybody in the South. And uh, so they were pretty strong Democrats. And then, of course, FDR came along and employed a lot of people during the Great Depression. So the Democrat Party was very, very strong. Uh, uh, I think here's Senator John Tower was Republican out of Texas, but very few Republicans. So anyway, well anyway, Bush gets this wild idea that he wants to run for Texas state senator, you know, Washington senator. So uh, he gets uh, he gets uh, he wins his primary in the Republican primary in '63. And in September of 63, he decides he's going to run, you know, he makes his formal announcement that he's going to run for Texas Senate. And, uh, of course, a big competitor there on the Democratic side was Ralph Yarborough, a uh, liberal Democrat. And as you said, there was two factions of that that Democratic Party, the conservatives and the liberal. And... uh, on the Republican side, there was also a little faction war going on there. Uh, they had the, uh, the Birchers, John Birchers. Oh, yeah. Were getting a stronghold throughout Texas politics in the early 60s. And there was a kind of a fight within the Republican Party over these uh, Birchers versus, uh, you know, traditional Republicans. I mean, uh, the if you know the John Birchers, they're, you know, they're right of Hitler. So, uh, anyway, Bush was struggling with these Birchers and uh, within his party. And he's, that's been written and documented. You can read about it if you want to research it. But uh, uh, he was fighting with these people. You know, he, he didn't want, he, was, he, he wasn't like, like they were, you know, he, he was more moderate, if you want to say. But, uh, anyway, this is where that James Parrott you just mentioned, uh, he was kind of a young kid out of Houston there that was a volunteer for the Republican Party down there in Harris County, and uh, he was kind of a Bircher type, uh, bad mouth and, you know, everybody communist and everything. I mean, he would have been a great... Uh, companion for General Walker, you know, so, uh, all right, so anyway, we'll just fast forward here, so Bush announced 
So anyway, he starts going out, and he's going on a camp, kind of a campaign trail and, uh, right after that. And he's speaking to little towns throughout Texas, Palestine, to, I'm sorry, Palestine, to Huntsville, uh, you know, going up through there. So uh, anyway, meanwhile, he's still got his part of offshore business going. And then uh, anyway, he starts to kill two birds with one stone here. He's got a speaking engagement in Dallas on November 21st, uh, it was a Thursday night at the Sheridan Hotel. Uh, he's given a speech to the American Association of Oil Drilling Contractors, which he is one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a significant one, so nothing suspicious, just plain old thing. And I'm sure George probably mixed some politics in with that since he was running. Yeah. So he was at the Sheridan Hotel, that night, spends the night, and then he heads out to Tyler, Tyler, Texas, uh, which is east of Dallas, about uh, 90 to 100 miles. I don't, I think he flew there. Uh, I'm not sure if they drove or flew, but I know they flew back. But uh, anyway, he was in Tyler, downtown Tyler, at the Blackstone Hotel, giving a luncheon speech. Uh, for the Kiwanis Club, and uh, <clears throat> while he was giving this speech, uh, they they get word of this uh, president's been shot, and uh, I think it was uh, one of the waiters there or, or somebody there came up to uh, Aubrey Irby, which is the vice president of the Tyler Kiwanis, and whispers in his ear and tells him about it, and then uh, Irby tells Bush, while Bush is giving his speech, Bush stops, and uh, he makes a few comments, words that uh, he can, can no longer carry on his speech in light of what happened here. So he kind of, even though he's a Republican, he kind of graciously acknowledged, you know, the gravity of the situation and said there's there's no sense in carrying on. So that's documented, although those people try to keep you know, with this picture of George Bush in, in Dealey Plaza, uh, you know, I mean, and they, they're doing everything possible to put him there and to the extent they're putting George Jr. there, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, you know, they got picture, look like picture of him, you know, but George Jr. was, I think he was in Andover. Yeah. He was a, uh, he was a cheerleader, and it was Friday night, so. Or Friday, so I'm sure they were getting ready for the big game, and that's just ridiculous that he'd be there. Uh, so anyway, uh, here's so anyway, Bush Seniors down there, Tyler, and they get word. His wife Barbara is uh, getting her hair done at a local salon over there, Tyler. So they all got to kind of get together, and then Bush makes a telephone call at 1:45 to the FBI. Now here's where this Russ Baker kind of comes in and starts fueling the fire here. Uh, George Bush on this document here, FBI document, uh, makes a call from Tyler to a George, I'm sorry, Graham Kitchell. He's FBI, and Graham Kitchell, I believe, is in Houston. That's all I can determine was he was in Houston. So Bush is calling Houston. He's not calling Dallas. And uh, he's, he's, he's talking about this James Parrott guy, this guy that's young uh, in 
volunteer there, you know, and he's worried about this guy's kind of a virtue or whatever. Yeah. I admit that looks strange to me, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe he's trying to tip him off. I don't know. But anyway. Or maybe he's the uh, only, you know, extreme right winger that had, he had heard say bad stuff about Kennedy, you know, and was just being yeah. uh, trying to be an honest citizen and, and, and let him know. I mean, you know, who knows? Yeah. Bush was aware of these birchers, and there's no secret up there in Dallas between this time that uh, the first people they accused of this assassination was the birchers and the Walker family of people and everything, so uh, that was the first suspect. Everybody was expecting it uh, since uh, Stevenson got kind of mobbed over there a month before, over there in the UN uh, rally over there. So, anyway, uh, Bush calls his, calls the FBI. There's a document on the memo. Everybody's seen it. And uh, anyway, they fly back to with uh, a guy named Zeppo. I think his first name is Tony. And I believe he's the president of uh, our owner of uh, the old Delta Drilling out of Tyler. Big old, big uh, rig contractor. Uh, and they fly back to Fort Worth first, drop Zeppel off, and then they fly to Dallas. Uh, probably a little private plane. But uh, while they were flying in, trying to fly into Love Field, they had to wait on Air Force Two to uh, take off. So they were kind of circling, circling, waiting for Air Force Two to take off. So anyway, they get back in Dallas, and uh, Bush pretty much canceled all his uh, political speeches for the rest of the year there. Uh, it's the holidays and the assassination, so he didn't pick it up till January of '64. So, uh, what Russ Baker fans of flames here is is uh, this uh, memo here. This Bush called in General James Parrott to this FBI Graham Kitchell. Graham Kitchell's brother, his name is George Kitchell. Now, George Kitchell was kind of a politically, uh, political, a political down here in Houston, and who also happened to be a friend of George DeMornshield. So, so you got this thing going on here, and, uh, so he's playing a connect the dot game, and, uh, of course he gets on Jesse Ventura's conspiracy theory with this, uh, stupid picture. Uh, so, you can see the suspicion here, you know. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and that that, pic- that picture, um, Steve, that picture, from what it looks like to me, and a guy named by the name of Paul Vines uh, pointed this out in, in one of the groups one day. Um, somebody had posted that picture of, uh, you know, the supposed Robert Oswald lookalike, uh, I forget his name, but he was just a witness. They were taking him down to the sheriff's office. And, uh, but it, the guy really resembled, you know, a little bit of Robert Oswald. Um, <clears throat> but in the background of the picture, on the far left side of it, there's a guy. And, uh, it looks a hell of a lot like the guy that is the supposed George Bush character. Now, that, that, that famous photo of, of the George Bush guy, um, was taken by a photographer named William Allen. 
who also you know took a lot of other photos as well as the one of the Robert Oswald lookalike with this guy in the background. And now I also found I also found this guy in another photo of at right right at the entrance of the school book depository when these it's like the cops are pointing uh across the street and uh you can see the bottle you can see an empty bottle uh in the alcove there. But he's on the far left smoking a cigarette and he's also today uh dennis morissette uh sent me a picture of him and, and he was captured in one of the films actually he was one of the uh one of the guys leading uh larry floor the you know the, the drunk guy uh leading him away from the school book depository i guess to the sheriff's office as well um in one of the films so you know this guy's clearly a detective of, of some sort or or you know worked for the sheriff's office or he was a dpd detective um, you know, cause I mean, and, and just, just, from, just from analyzing the jacket, I mean, it's a very distinct, like, uh, almost a, a diamond pattern. Uh, I mean, it's a dark, yeah. is it, it's a dark suit, but there's some kind of a pattern on it. And, yeah, it's uh, kind of a houndstooth pattern on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it really looks like the, you know, this guy and I, nobody seems to know who he is, but I, I'm, I'm. I'm guessing, you know, if he's in, if he's involved in the arrest of Larry Floor, he's some kind of local, uh, local law enforcement and, and not really this George Bush guy because if, you know, we don't see that, the guy that, that, we don't see George Bush in any other Allen photos is what I'm trying to say. I mean, it, and he took a hell of a lot of photos of, uh, you know, the officers in front of the TSBD, you know, in various succession, uh, and but we do have this guy a lot, and if you if you look at his suit, his build, his haircut, and you know, and everything else, I mean, I think it's I think it's a case of where we have a mistaken identity here, you know. Well, yeah, I've, 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 I know what you're talking about. Uh, that's interesting. I never did kind of link those two guys together, although there was talk about it. Uh, uh, the one that that's leading Larry Fleur away uh, is more like a General Westmoreland look like. <laughs> Anything guy looks like a spitting image of G- General Westmoreland. Uh, but yeah, but turned to the side in the Allen photo, it, it very well could be. But uh, as you said, it, they, they look like they're wearing houndstooth jackets, you know. But uh, speaking of that, uh, I work with Dennis a little bit on that, uh, not fully, but uh, but you're right. The, that guy did escort Larry Floor away. And that was early after the assassination, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was early. And uh, <clears throat> I read up on that Larry Flora thing, and I believe that man may have been working for the sheriff's department because he sent a couple guys over there, or they had a couple guys over there. So uh, the sheriff's department over there, you know, was just, just right down the street. And that's where they're taking all the witnesses. And so that man possibly could be with the sheriff's department. I'll, I'll work on that a little longer uh, and see if I can find that. Yeah, because I bet. I dig into that. I'd like to figure out exactly who that guy is, you know? I mean, he, cause, like you said, yeah, he's got he's got kind of a weird haircut going on there. It's kind of a swooped up in the middle on both sides, but, uh, you know, from the side, yeah. from the side, it looks like a normal haircut, but if you look at him straight on, it's kind of, it's kind of weird looking, but, uh, yeah, I was trying to identify, you know, I threw that picture in there today to see if anybody knew who he was because I knew we were going to be talking about this, but, uh, I couldn't find, we couldn't, we couldn't figure out exactly who he was. 
you know, to pin down, uh, you know, or, or what he was. But, but he was like, smoking a cigarette too, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was in, he was smoking one in, in, uh, one of the pictures. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, very interesting, uh, I think we can find, we can find it out, uh, but I, I, first place I'd look would be the Sheriff's Department. Uh, I'll, I'll try to dig around there and see if I can find those, get some names and see if we can look up some photos of them, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have something to throw out there for these people, you know, <laughs> these George Bush did it people. And uh... Yeah, well, they've gone completely nuts. I mean, uh, I... I <laughs> Well, what leads me up to this, this kind of angered me, all these nutballs with this Bush thing. Not that I'm a big Bush supporter, but uh, they accuse me of that. But I did a little research on it, and I might as well just tell everybody here, I've got, I've got what I believe is the picture of George Bush and Tyler at the Kiwanis Club meeting. I've got the picture right here, although I'm trying to get that, but uh, what I got on it is uh, written in Tyler, so I think this will put an end to it, but I need to button up a few things uh, to really confirm it, but uh, it is 1964's President uh, Senate election cycle photos, so yeah, cause you, you, yeah, you sent me that picture and, uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah, when I was in Tyler uh, a few weeks ago, I went down there to the library and tried to find the uh, Kiwanis Club. Uh, if there's anything the Kiwanis Club, you know, meeting uh, in, in the local newspaper down there in the Tyler Telegraph, uh, I couldn't find any for that whole week, but I couldn't find any Kiwanis Club announcements either so uh was unsuccessful there i was hoping i would find something there but uh evidently not so uh anyway he was there there's no doubt about it it's crazy yeah i think These so too. <laughs> all right steve yeah. is there is there anything we uh didn't get to that you wanted to mention Uh, 
leafletting activities in Dallas before he went to New Orleans. Uh, I know that. Uh, I, well, can't confirm it 100%, but it sure looks like it. And I've got another article out there. I'll probably try to dress it up and get it get it out about Oswald and the Middleton newspaper in a little letter that most likely he wrote and had it in his hand in the backyard uh, photo. So, or had it in this newspaper. So there's a lot of things that kind of, there needs to be a lot of work on my RN. That's what I tend to do. Try to get this picture a little clear. Uh, but uh, other than that, I uh, really don't have much more to say at this point. Yeah, well, I know our, our side's got to do some more digging, too. Um, you know, especially, you know, yeah, we can we can get back to the primary documents, but then, you know, I think it has to lead to both sides to speculate, you know, for certain things, you know, exactly what those documents mean and, uh, you know, exactly what they, ha- you know, how to interpret them the correct way and uh, try to fill in some of these blanks, Steve, you know. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a few, you know, and that's what we're doing, buddy. That's what we're doing, and, and we need your help, people. So, if you got any information out there, whether you know whether it's uh, about this this Nietzsche Street address or about uh, you know Bush being in Tyler, Texas, at the Kiwanis Club, uh, you know, giving a speech at at, at the luncheon there, you know, let us know, and uh, you know, because I'm sure people are still around. That was it, uh, you know that lived back then as well, you know. Um, so so get at us and let us know. And, uh, Steve, man, I appreciate you coming on the show and, and, and talking about this stuff. I've been wanting to talk about this package and stuff for a long time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, we'll won't give up on it, you know. We'll dabble a little more, see what we can do. But uh, like, like you say, Rob, uh, anybody that's got any input on that, uh, it's certainly welcome, you know for all of us most definitely and you know where to find us people you know <laughs> right <laughs> alright Steve thanks for your opportunity yeah man I appreciate you coming on again it's been a pleasure as usual and uh, you hang on the line for me Steve I'm going to talk us out here everybody okay. for more on the show I'm going to put up a couple uh, interesting photographs and links over at tlgpodcast.com uh, you know they'll be on the, the show post with Steve and you can check them out and follow up for yourself on some things and see exactly what it is we were talking about here on the show. Um, and uh, I guess that's it, people. There's some bitches in the can. Beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy Rob Clark. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911, U.S. only. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.